I felt so disenfranchised. I felt so vulnerable when I first moved here. Mm-hmm. And having that sense of confidence and control over where I was living, the society in which I was living, was so important in me subconsciously that I realized that, I, you know, I heard once that in order to win at any game, you really have to know the rules. And the law is the rules of this country. And so the idea of being a lawyer was so directly connected with that feeling of being vulnerable. I wanted to be empowered and I wanted to be in the position to empower other people. And so that's what led me to want to be a lawyer. Hello, hello. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 10 of Migrations. Today I'm talking to Denu Maru, an Indian immigration lawyer. This conversation was a wake-up call to me, especially considering I was born a U.S. citizen. Immigration itself can be traumatic, but the legality of it can compound it. But before we get into that, I wanted to let you know that Migrations has a Twitter account. If you tweet, follow me at MigrationsPod. I'll not only be sharing episodes, but I'm also following other podcast accounts created by Asians. I love anything that can decenter the dominant white narrative, and that's why I have centered Asian voices in my podcast, from my guests to my behind-the-scenes creative team. So I'm also asking if you could help me reach a goal. I'd like to get six more Patreon patrons by the end of June. Head over to www.patreon.com migrations. For $5 a month, you get migration stickers. And for $10 a month, you get a book handpicked by me after six months. I'd love your support if you're able. But if you aren't, I understand. Times are hard now more than ever. But I'd love it if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and or review the show. This helps a lot. People can find the podcast quicker and more Asian love spreads around. Thank you all so much from the bottom of my heart. This is a labor of love and I wouldn't be here without you. Okay, now on to the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Migrations. Today I'm interviewing Denu Maru, a South Asian immigrant and immigration lawyer living in Chicago. Denu immigrated from Mumbai, India when she was 10 years old with her family and likes to connect with her clients through her own stories. You can find her at www.swagatusa.com. That's www.swagatusa.com. Welcome, Denu. I'm so happy to have you on here. Thank you so much, Nisha. I'm happy to connect and speak to your listeners. Awesome. So for everyone out there, we're actually recording this on Saturday, March 21st. (laughs) I usually don't talk about this, but just given everything that's happening in the world um, and everything changing on a daily basis, I just wanted to put that out there. And I also kind of wanted to start it out that way. Um, You know, how are you doing, Danu, with everything that's going on in the world lately with the, the coronavirus crisis? I'm doing okay. Luckily, immigration law has always been an area of law where, you know, kind of crossing that physical boundary location-wise was important. And so all of our systems have been set up for remote work. um, And that's what we're doing. We're doing mostly remote work. And 
you know, just like we're connecting today, we're connecting remotely. I'm connecting with my clients remotely most of the time in these days. And we're still meeting deadlines and and USCIS has closed for in-person appointments, but it's Mm -hmm. still operational internally and deadlines are still applicable. So we cannot afford to completely shut down, but we are doing the best we can with the situation as it is. I know some of our clients have suffered and we just finished, you know, H-1B lottery period and a number of my clients who really wanted to have sponsor employees for the lottery ended up having to back down because their industry was severely impacted. So I am feeling sort of the secondary impact of what is going on. Sure. It's not just like business as usual because of, you know, other market forces, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm glad that your business is set up to be remote and that you could still do the good work that you do. Um, Just for our listeners out there that may not know, can you talk about what USCIS is? USCIS stands for United States Citizenship and Immigration Service. And what it is, it's basically an agency under the Department of Homeland Security that processes affirmative applications for various visas and green cards. So that's basically who you have to work with to deal with your immigration status in any way. In a way, but not if it's defensive. Like if you're being deported, for example, Mm -hmm. then you work with a completely different system to deal with your immigration status. Or if you're entering the United States from outside, then you're working with the consulates and the Department of State. So, you know, a little bit of sort of in general how we're set up. We're dealing with about four different government agencies in order to process immigration visas. One is the Department of Labor for all the employment-based visas and green cards out there. Another is the United States Citizenship and Immigration Service, which is under the Department of Homeland Security. Another is the Immigration Courts, or EOIR, which is Executive Office of Immigration Review. And this is something that's probably interesting for people executive office means that it's directly under the executive branch. Mm. And that's one of the biggest contentions about immigration justice system in general is that it is directly controlled by the executive branch and it is not independent. And then the third one is ICE. Of course, that's the enforcement branch of the government. And then there is the Department of State and the Department of State controls the consulates. So when somebody is coming from outside, they're working with Department of State. And this is a really good way for you to kind of understand how complex this field is, because we are literally working with four different government agencies all the time. All of them have different procedures. They have different ways to communicate. They have different systems that we have to know and follow. Just in the first few minutes of our conversation, Benu educated me about so much I didn't know nor did I have to know as someone that was born in the U.S. ICE is something that is more familiar to me, but I never realized how the consulate played a role. The amount of bureaucracy involved in immigration is daunting. I asked Thenu more about the bureaucracy that she deals with. All the time, all the time. And so when you asked about today's environment, we're keeping our eyes on the news coming from all of these different government agencies. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a little bit of information to consume. It's like bombarding of information. Every day there's news out of each of these agencies about what they're changing, you know, so. Wow. Yeah. We're being so 
bombarded already with so much information just for someone's daily life. So also adding the layer of requiring assistance with immigration is a whole whole new thing. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why I'm so happy to be talking to you and to our listeners, because I love that we have this opportunity to still stay connected in a way and to really understand the human side of all of this and the bureaucratic side of all of this and to understand really what immigration is in a broad sense and also in a personal sense. Can you, on that note, talk a little bit more about your immigration story? I was 10 when I came here, Nisha. And so when I immigrated, I didn't even know that I was immigrating. Mm. I just knew I was coming to visit my cousins. They lived in America. America was very cold and uh, they ate a lot of candies. And, you know, to my 10-year-old brain, I was really excited to see snow. I was really excited to eat candies because my cousins would bring candies every time they came. And I was like, (laughs) yay, there's a lot of candies and Disney World, you know. Yeah, so that was the extent of, you know, what I understood I was going to be doing here. And of course, it was totally different when I first got here. <laughs> yeah. What was like the biggest culture shock to you when you when you did get here? I want to say everything was a culture shock. Like the fact that there was so much space. I was so afraid of the dark. I grew up in Mumbai and I never saw dark. So even when we shut off the lights and even when it was nighttime, there were still always lights seeping in from the windows and there was always noise. And when I first moved, we moved to a town called Brookfield, Connecticut, where my cousins and my uncle and aunt lived. And they had, you know, a really nice home on a really large piece of land. And I just, the first thing was, there's a lot of space. It's really lonely. It's really dark and it's very quiet. And I'm not used to it, you know? Yeah, especially being in Mumbai. My parents um, grew up in Mumbai as well. It's definitely like hustle and bustle like most of the day. Yeah. And so, you know, I remember little things like I remember having to grab something that I forgot from the car and I was so scared to step outside into the driveway. I'm like, oh, my God, it's really dark. Wow. Yeah, that must have been a lot to adjust to. Um, I mean, did you feel that you needed to adjust to it? Did you like want to go back home? How are you feeling about it? Um, So kind of to walk you through that first year, I think the first year was probably the hardest by far after I came here. And I had just started fifth grade and, you know, I had done a couple of months in Brookfield, Connecticut. And then my family moved into our own little apartment in a place called Norwalk, Connecticut, which was a slightly bigger city than Brookfield was. But nevertheless, it was very difficult because I was a 10-year-old and all of the people in my class were 10-year-olds. And neither of us really had the knowledge to understand each other. So my classmates didn't understand why I spoke differently, why I dressed differently. Like, why did I eat, you know, green stuff on my bread and like just little things, you know, they didn't understand me and I didn't understand them. And so it turned into a situation where I felt bullied a lot and, you know, misunderstood. And I felt like, you know, I wasn't used to looking different from everyone else. You know, I was used to looking at least, you know, from the outside, the same as everyone around me. And that was not going to be the case in Norwalk, Connecticut. So that was a really big culture shock. Also, the education system in India, even though I did learn in English, so the language barrier wasn't that significant, but the Indian system that I learned in 
was still kind of a British style system adapted for India. And so when I came here, understanding the difference in the school system was also significant. And, you know, every little thing like I was laughed at because I stood up to answer a question when I was called on. And that's how we did it in our schools. But here people answered from their seats and I wasn't used to that. Just little things like that. And it, over the period of time, it's kind of like, well, why is she so different? Why does she talk different? And then people would start staying away from me or like cut in, in line in front of me or hide my lunch or, you know, little things like that. And every day I used to come home and cry yeah. every single day. So that was hard. That was very hard. It was hard for me. It was hard for my parents because I know that they had their own problems to work out. And then having your kid like, come crying from school every day, you know? Yeah, definitely. That's just like heartbreaking to hear, to be honest. And no one should have to deal with that. But I think that unfortunately, that's what happens when people are just so accustomed to one way of being and they can't process, especially kids can't process someone that's different from them. And you coming from a place where you were not othered or different and coming to America, where suddenly you are for no like good reason. Um, that's, that's really hard, I can imagine. Yeah. And it did get easier after that first year, but definitely I feel like that first year, and I know I cannot be the only immigrant to have faced a difficult transition because that thing, that transition is what bonds immigrants from all walks of life in all different countries and all different economic backgrounds and things, because you face that initial culture shock. And that is forever etched in your memory and it's forever etched in your way of being. Yeah, for sure. So how did that inspire you to become an immigration lawyer or what did inspire you to pursue this work? That's a really good question. And I thought about that. Sometimes people think that it had a very direct impact, but it actually had an indirect path mm -hmm. to my role as an immigration lawyer. What it did inspire me to do though, was to be a lawyer because I felt so disenfranchised. I felt so vulnerable when I first moved here. Mm -hmm. And having that sense of confidence and control over where I was living, the society in which I was living, was so important in me subconsciously that I realized that, I, you know, I heard once that in order to win at any game, you really have to know the rules. And mm -hmm the law is the rules of this country. And so the idea of being a lawyer was so directly connected with that feeling of being vulnerable. I wanted to be empowered and I wanted to be in the position to empower other people. And so that's what led me to want to be a lawyer. But then I kind of stumbled in different areas of law. I mean, I first thought, okay, you know, I'm really good at math and science, you know, so let me try to do healthcare law because I had a number of people in my family who were in the healthcare industry, but it didn't click. When I interned at the American Medical Association and other places, I realized, you know, I didn't really foresee myself working with insurance companies and hospitals and things like that. I wanted to work directly with people. And so when I started doing immigration cases and I started being there for people, it just felt like this was meant for me. And so that's when I went into immigration law and it's been a number of years and I'm not looking back and it was the best decision I ever made. 
Wow, that's really powerful just knowing that it wasn't even your intention, yet here you are advocating for others that are going through these immigration experiences. That's very powerful. And I really liked how you talked about if you want to win the game, you have to know the rules and making that connection to law. I think that that's like very impressive. Yeah, thank you. It's been a very rewarding career. And I have witnessed so many people who had been through similar kinds of struggles that I've seen my family go through. And so it's been a journey for sure. And it's a journey that I take with my clients over and over and over again, you know? Yeah, definitely. Would you mind sharing a little bit about like who you work with and what some of the biggest challenges are? Yeah, sure. You know, we work with people in various camps. So we work with people who are sponsoring family members. So sometimes an example of a client would be somebody who came to the U.S. as a student, as an international student, fell in love with someone who's an American, and they want to then stay here and build their life in America. Another example is someone who came here and was being you know, recruited by an American company who wanted to sponsor their visa. Mm-hmm. Um, another example would be someone who is being removed and they're applying for asylum because they're fleeing dangerous conditions in their own country. Um, Another would be an example of somebody who maybe they're undocumented and they're married to somebody who is a citizen, but that person is being abusive to them and not really helping them get legal status and instead using their status against them. Like, if you don't do this, you know, I'll have you deported or if you don't do that, you know. And so we work with just a wide variety of people. And we've also worked with business owners who have had businesses in other countries who want to come and open up a branch of their business in the United States and maybe move some of their employees. And so, you know, the whole idea of immigration law, I think sometimes in the news gets so narrowed, but it is such a broad field. It really covers people from such a wide range of income levels and backgrounds and countries. Yeah, just hearing you name all the agencies earlier and then also naming these different types of situations just made me realize the different predicaments people find themselves in and how, you know, establishing a home somewhere is not something that's easy, especially if you're coming from a different place and having to go through a whole legal process is an added stressor in a lot of ways. Yeah, it really is. And having somebody by your side, I feel, who actually cares about your status is also really important. Thenu just hit on something, as she said, of utmost importance. Support. Thenu shared her experience of feeling alone and bullied as a child and immigrant in this country. And the examples she provided describe so many challenging predicaments immigrants and refugees face every day. They fear for their physical safety, And when this happens, it naturally affects one's emotional safety. This reminds me of the same safety we desire during the pandemic. Some of us, like myself, are privileged to isolate while others have to take daily risks. Their physical safety affects their emotional safety, and then this emotional dress affects the physical. So support is essential for those that don't have choices, those that are stuck. If we make this comparison, I think we can better understand ways we have misunderstood the situations that no immigrant ever asked for. I asked Thenu about some of these common misconceptions the public has about the immigration process and immigrants themselves. I think that 
there are misconceptions that even sometimes immigrants have about other immigrants. Like, for example, mm. people who are illegal in the United States and seeking legal status maybe think that people who have come on a visa have it easy. People who have come on a visa think, well, you know, I'm waiting for 20 years to get a green card. People who don't have status or who come here illegally have it easy. The truth is neither have it easy. The system is incredibly difficult. And it is made difficult because of a number of factors. I mean, there are some priorities that we have as a country. And then the second factor is the fact that this is a system that really needs to be redone and it needs to be remade, keeping in mind our modern needs and communities. And it hasn't had that opportunity or that political will to really get remade. And so those are some misconceptions. Other misconceptions are like, you know, we talked about the fact that there are so many government agencies. So I think people don't often realize how complex of a field it is. And also, you know, I hear all the time things like, oh, immigrants don't pay taxes. Couldn't be further from the truth, right? Mm -hmm. Even illegal immigrants are often actually paying taxes and they're paying into Medicare and Medicaid, but they're not claiming the benefits of those programs because they can't. And that's another misconception is that you would look at the news and think that all the people who have crossed over illegally are on welfare or some kinds of government benefits. Not true. They don't qualify for government benefits without a social security number. And you don't get a social security number unless you're here on a legal status. And so that's another big misconception. Another one that I hear about my H1 clients is immigrants are taking our jobs. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting because that misconception really views the world as a limited job number place, which is not the truth, right? Mm -hmm. um, immigrants who come here, of course, they have to work, but they also spend money. And by spending money and by living life here, they're creating jobs. And a lot of times having a robust H-1B program saves jobs. How does it save jobs? Because you might be a company that has shortage in, say, the technology field. And so you might have H-1B workers work in certain technical fields, but you will hire locally for your sales team, your customer service team, you know, the marketing team and all of these other things. And maybe if you couldn't bring those technology workers from other countries, you would have to actually make your company branch be located overseas. And then, you know, all these other jobs would also go with it. So that's another thing. Also, immigrant owners are at a higher percentage of people who run businesses and small business owners. And so in a lot of ways, immigrants do create jobs and they contribute to the economy just like citizens, right? Also, sometimes you hear you know, things like, oh, people who come from another country are coming here to commit crimes or they're criminals or you know, things like that. But actually, if you look at the data, immigrants have a lower crime rate than natural born citizens. So it's a lot of misconceptions. But the biggest one, I think, is that why don't they just get in line and get legal status? It is definitely assuming that there is not a will to be legal. That is absolutely false. There is a deep desperation for a lot of my clients to get legal status if they don't have legal status. And our system has made it so that a lot of times, many, many times, people don't have a line to get into. 
And so that's one of the reasons why I personally think that our immigration system really needs to be looked at and parts of it really need to be reshaped and made more intuitive to make more sense for our actual needs. Wow. You touched on so much there. I have like 20 follow-up questions. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for naming (laughs) those because I think there's just a lot of people just assume, you know, that like, it's just like you fill out some application and you, you know, you wait to hear back from the government to say that you have legal status. And that's definitely not the case. Um, I actually used to be a technical recruiter back in the day. And I remember there were certain clients we had that wanted individuals with technical skills. And the only people I could find were people with H1B status. So Mm -hmm. someone had to be able to sponsor them. So, Mm -hmm. you know, are they taking jobs or are they providing a service for a company that needs them when Uh I'm unable uh to find anyone else that happened to me on several occasions. I remember Um, Uh for our listeners that may not know what H1B status is. um, Can you talk a little bit more about that? H1B is a form of visa that somebody gets or status that somebody gets when it's an employer who's sponsoring an employee, that employee has to have what they consider to be, they have to be in a specialty occupation. And what that means is basically that the role that they're applying for has to be a role that requires at least a bachelor's degree in a specific field. So it's a visa that people get that's a high-skilled worker visa. That's the H-1B. It has a maximum term of six years. So in that six-year period of time, if the employer really wants to keep that employee, they have to sponsor that employee for a green card, which is actually legally permanent status or permanent residence Mm -hmm. card. So that's loosely the process for H-1B. Thank you for explaining that because, yeah, I feel like there are so many different types of visas that people can be on their student visas. There's all these things and it's not something that you just get and then you could just stay here once you get it. You have to continually seek some type of sponsorship or a reason to stay within a country or um, you might not be able to. And I don't know if a lot of people know that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's very risky because, you know, if you don't find a sponsor within a set amount of time, then you may fall out of status. So even the fact that, you know, somebody is legal or illegal, it's not a bright line test. People who are legal can find themselves out of status for technical reasons at times. So it's really not as black and white as sometimes people think. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Thank you for clarifying that. I also wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, you were saying like the system isn't even set up to necessarily have lines for people. And I thought that was a really great point to make that people just assume that there is one, but the system is not necessarily set up for that. And there has to be a lot of changes. So if you were to imagine a system that was much more efficient and much more human centered, what would that look like? That is a very, very good question. And I think that asking that question, it's is a really big first step for our government to take. And I don't feel like people are asking the right questions. And really, that is the kind of question that needs to be asked. What that would look like is basically, it should be aligned with our economic needs, right? So the first thing is, I feel like we need low-skilled work. Low-skilled work is very hard to get in our present system. We almost have to rely on this undocumented worker force 
in order to meet certain low-skilled jobs. And that's really unfortunate because there should be a better way for people and more simpler way for people to be able to apply for low-skilled work. That's one thing. Second thing is we need to really rethink our quotas. Our quotas are so restrictive for today's needs that we're having people who are highly qualified, who are really contributing tremendously to our economy and to making our workforce, our country still be on the cutting edge of technology. And these people are waiting for decades and decades to get green cards. And, you know, a lot of times they're struggling because they have to wait for sponsorship and very expensive and cumbersome processes to take place before they can stay here and contribute and work and maintain their family and lives here. So I feel like, you know, we really need to rethink those quotas and we need to think about whether they represent reality, especially today's reality where everything is so technology focused, you know, for starters. And then, you know, I think our courts, like I mentioned, it's really strange to me that our courts are connected with the executive branch, which means that anytime there's a system which is so directly tied to the executive branch, especially our justice system, like I really feel like our courts should be independent and they should really be empowered to make decisions based on the constitution and the laws and not on political will. Everyone wants to think that their government has their best interests in mind, but I don't necessarily think that's the case. I mean, I think the story of so many immigrants is that they are seeking a place where they feel that life is better or they are escaping a place that is dangerous for um, like you said, when someone seeks asylum and then they get to that place and there are all these challenges, you know, and the system is not set up to support them. And it's just very sad to me that it's not taking those human needs. I mean, I'm, I'm such an idealist, like a utopian person. So I'm just like, why can't we just like care about the people, you know, but um, I, I just wish it wasn't so much to ask for. And like, you're right, like ask the right questions to get to what people actually need to sustain their lives. And I think our current situation with COVID-19 is a perfect example of like realizing what's important to people on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. Like what are their actual Mm -hmm. needs and how Mm -hmm. are we as a country, like in all countries, if any, you know, supporting Mm -hmm. their citizens or not supporting them. And what are those economic forces like pharmaceuticals and all this stuff that, you know, it's revealing these cracks, you know, that's a really good way to think about it because you want to look at individuals and you want to look at individual actions, but then you want to take that data and apply it to what can we do to make this system reflective of or take into account these individuals' information into the ideal system that we're designing as a country in a more high-level way, you know? Yeah, definitely. Everything is just so connected. And I think like myself as a native born U.S. citizen, I might think that my life has nothing to do with that undocumented person who is doing that low skilled work. But one thing that I have realized more than ever lately is like something like the food supply system, things like that. Like, no, that's who's actually like picking the food on farms and our migrant farm workers and things like that. Like they help our country run. They bring food to our table, you know, and I feel like they're just very forgotten, unfortunately. And I think it's really important to see how all these things are, in fact, connected. 
Absolutely. I think we can do better. I mean, I do believe in this country. I believe so deeply in our values as a country and, and the values that it was set up on. It's just a matter of consistently improving those systems, right? I agree. Um, I mean, I'm also of the belief that sometimes we need to overthrow some of these systems. <laughs> but you know, I just hope that we keep you know, moving the needle, at least in a direction, but also rethinking how the needle got there in the first place, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Really, Nisha, this is exactly reflective of something that I like to do with clients. I like to teach clients, you know, where their case stands and also why. What is that law that's guiding their cases and why is it limiting or not limiting their options? Sure. That's a great point. You know, I've also heard this argument that, you know, my parents were able to come here and build a life for themselves. So why can't, you know, other people do that now? Just like what you were saying, like, why don't they just get in line? But it's like the circumstances my parents came under, they definitely had challenges, but that was a time when the country was looking for immigrants and looking for that type of skilled labor. Now is things have changed a lot and priorities have shifted, like you said, and it's not just the same way. Nothing is the same than how it was like 40 plus years ago when my parents came here. And I think it's also important to, on a more human level, to really reach out to people who might be newer, you know, because I read once in a book, Nisha, and this also made a lot of sense to me. It said the line was, the settled have always looked down on the settlers. Mm -hmm. And we really need to reach out to the settlers. Mm -hmm. And on a human level, you know, they could be our neighbors, they could be our coworkers, they could be, you know, our grocery store clerks, whatever, and just offer that little bit of welcome to them. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I really do like that because it really focuses on I don't know, like different power dynamics that are in play that really shouldn't be like no one in this world should think that they're better than anybody else, because especially because of immigration status. Oh, my gosh. You know, so if you don't think that way, then, yes, your neighbor is your neighbor, no matter who they are or what their circumstances or how they came here. Um, And just having that empathy is so, so critical. Yeah. And I think about, you know, that first year when I first came here and a little action would really have made such a big difference to me. Like if somebody had said to me, you come and sit at my lunch table, a little action like that, like it would have made my day. I had a teacher who was that hero for me. And she said to me, you know, I believe in you. And that one little word, that one little conversation gave me the courage to take on those other struggles and challenges, you know? Wow. That comes full circle, right? From where your circumstances came from to what you're doing now and what you're sharing with everybody. Um, So if you were to tell um, your younger self in your first year here, something from who you are right now, what would you tell her? I would tell her that you will find your group and that this country has room for you. It really does. We really do have room for so many different groups of people. It is one thing that is absolutely beautiful, and it makes me believe in what I do every single day. It's just all about what we seek as humans, right? We all seek a sense of belonging. And, you know, especially when you're a new person in a new place and you feel out of place, you need to know that you belong. And really, that's what we need to be 
letting people know who are new, you know, that, that somewhere, somehow they have a place here. Wow. Thank you so much. This has been so helpful. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before we close out here? I just want to point out to a resource that I have, Anisha. You know, I have a free Facebook group. Anyone who is going through an immigration process can join and share their experiences. My goal is to create a community where people do share experiences with each other in a way that is moderated. And so we don't end up with rumors and things that are uh, not true that sometimes get mixed in with the truth. And so please, if you are interested, look up the Facebook group, USA Immigration Experience, and request an ad, and I'm happy to add you. If you actually need legal help, feel free to call our law firm. Our number is 312-854-7065, and you can find us on the web. Nisha, you introduced us already, but www.swagausa.com, S-W-A-G-A-T. USA.com. And, you know, I look forward to helping anybody whom I can help and hearing your feedback is also really important. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I'll include all that information in the show notes as well. Absolutely. It's been such a pleasure to have this conversation. I also want to tell you, Nisha, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I'm really glad that you were able to join us in the migrations community. As you all know, this episode was recorded at the absolute beginning of quarantine. I followed up with Denu to see if there were any updates. Since then, she said that there have been numerous shutdowns of consulates and green card processing was impacted by COVID. Many of these changes are temporary. So the difficulty around these times is not in isolation. And as we have seen, it often impacts those that are the most marginalized. I don't know about you, but Thenu's migration story and knowledge about the challenges around immigration really left a mark on me. As a U.S.-born American citizen, I was barely aware of these challenges, because that's what privilege is. And this is exactly why those of us that are privileged need to know this information. It is our duty to debunk myths about the immigration process. So if you ever get into a difficult conversation with a family member or friend that thinks immigrants are taking all the jobs or... They just need to get in line. Maybe this podcast will help. As always, I'd like to thank my creative talent that helped me make this episode. Thanks to Tiffany Wong for your help with the Migrations cover art. And thanks to Shin Kawasaki for the Migration song, Find Another Way. Music was also provided by CC Mixture by Airtone with the songs Resonance and Recreation. And last but definitely not least, thanks to Quincy Surismith for editing this episode. And of course, I want to give a shout out to my $20 a month and above Patreon patrons. So thank you to my brother Shalin and Dahlia Guerin for your generous support. Thank you to all my Patreon patrons. Remember, you could support this podcast by going to www.patreon.com slash migrations. And now follow us on Twitter at MigrationsPod. Thank you again. This has been your host, Nisha Modi. And until next time. Music.